trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stop that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who've found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. Today we're joined on the show by Harley Grosser. Harley's a small cap fund manager, having established his own fund called Capital H Management after a decade of investing in the market. In the discussion, we talked about Harley's background, how he was trading stocks whilst in lectures at university, he started writing and distributing research write-ups unsolicited and sending them out to fund managers, and ultimately how that landed him his first job at a fund that he really admired. That research and experience also enabled him to establish a unit trust and find funding for investors who would ultimately back him into establishing his own small cap fund. He shares some stories and covers topics that I'm sure will be invaluable for anyone aspiring to work professionally in the industry or just learn from for their personal investment portfolio. And just for some context and background, we recorded this conversation in late 2019, just before Christmas. This was before the COVID-19 impacts were being felt around the world and markets. It doesn't make any of the content any less relevant or interesting, but it's worth bearing in mind for a couple of the stock-specific things that we talk about. Well, that's enough of an introduction for now, so let's get on with the show. Hi, Harley. Thanks so much for joining us today. If we can start out with some background, can you let us know what it was that um, got you into the world of finance and investing in the first place? Sure, sure. So, uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Um, I sort of got into small caps probably 10 years ago now. Um, Prior to that, I'd always had, you know, an interest of some variety in in just business or in in, in money. Really, and, you know, probably came from growing up with not too much money. Not that it was a it was a good upbringing. We had everything we needed, but you know, we moved around a lot with rent and um, you know, didn't do sort of the, the holidays and things like that. So, I think it becomes a factor when you're growing up, and so you start to think, well, you know, is there a way that I can sort of make money one day and not have to worry about those things? Um, and I would have been probably 16, 17 at that time and thought it's probably time for me to figure out how to do that by myself. And there were a few things at the time that looked interesting. And so I would have been at school then and, and I was I was thinking, well, year 11 and 12 is is a long time. I was probably an impatient teenager and thought year 11 and 12 take you know, two years of time away from me being able to try to make some money. And so I thought, um, how can I sort of get there sooner? And I, I ended up um, deciding to sort of leave school uh, I kept doing the year 11 and 12 by correspondence and then I set up a sort of a side business on the side. So I finished all the HSC usual stuff, but I was able to work essentially full time in a little uh, doing personal training business at the time. I save up money. Um, and then along that way, I sort of found investing. I just saw the markets and I thought the markets look really interesting. You know, the concept of being able to use your, um, sort of use your brain to make money in the markets was just really fascinating to me. I hadn't seen anything like that before. And so I jumped in and I tried literally everything. I was using the money from the business that I, would, I was doing commodities at one point, you know, currencies, you know, trying to do shorter term trading. And one of them was small caps. Uh, and I just fell into small caps because that's what, what worked for me. You know, I had some sort of talent and I just, it just, it just worked. 
So, Harley, do you want to just take us through a little bit? Because we haven't actually had a guest that's talked a little bit about commodities and, and foreign exchange currency stuff. Did you have some wins there or when? what was the sort of pivot to stocks? So, look, to be honest, there was wins and then that you would pursue it further and then there was losses. And I never really came away with any net material wins in any of those. And just the concept of it didn't, I didn't fall in love with it like I did with small caps. It was just intuitively that if you go into a small cap market, you know there are price inefficiencies. You know that if you do your work, you can get an advantage. Uh, the concept of buying something cheaper than what you fundamentally know it's worth gives you conviction to take a bigger position and to also hold it through in periods when it looks like you might be wrong. Um, that that whole concept just sort of grasped me stronger than anything else did. But but it, but the thing was that you know everything that I tried, I really gave it everything. So. I gave commodities everything, wasn't any good at it. I gave currencies everything and I wasn't any good at it. And then I really jumped into the small cap thing. And once I had momentum, I just really went very hard at that. Oh, cool. And do you remember sort of roughly when it was that you really started focusing in on that small cap space? To be fair, it was a good time to get started. So I would have got started about, uh, well, it would have been, it would have been 2008, 2009. So you sort of entered the market when um, everyone's sort of scared of stocks. There's a lot of really good businesses, really cheap. Um, that's probably a good time to, to learn the craft because um, one, you know, there's a bunch of cheap stocks out there. Um, and then two, you sort of born into a period where people are very cautious. And so that sort of stays with you, I think, through your career. So that's still reflected in how I do it now in terms of holding off the cash and things like that. Just going back a bit, perhaps, but you were working and studying, were you, whilst trying out all these different trading techniques and finding what you've liked? Sort of, you know, obviously finished year 12 stuff and went and did university, did the usual commerce and accounting finance. And what I would do is I would do work in the morning and then I would go to these lectures and then all day I would really sit in the lectures with my laptop and I'd try to find stocks. Um, and then afternoon and night, I would go and do more of the business and use that cash that would go straight into my contact account um, and try to buy, you know, the, the stock I thought was going to go up next. Harley, you mentioned something really quite interesting uh, about pricing inefficiencies and your love for small caps. I mean, bearing in mind that you were a teenager, obviously, you know, years ahead of you, um, was there a particular stock or something that you were like, oh, you know, right, this is it. This is, you know, was there a winner or was there something in particular that just really sort of, you know, the, 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 the light bulb went off? It's a good question. So I guess coming from very much outside the industry, I didn't have any sort of, um, you know, friends or family that were in finance or in investing at all. So I was learning it all myself. And my way that I sort of got into that industry um, was I'd find these small cap stocks. I'd go away and do probably way too much research, more than you need to do, but I was doing, I just thought that's how you're supposed to do it. And then I would write these really long reports, probably 30 page reports that I don't think anybody actually read the whole thing, but that was sort of, you know, I'd spend weeks on these things and they were really detailed. Um, and I'd go in and meet the company, you know, they'd, somehow I would let a 18 year old, 19 year old into their office, but I would go in and, um, and just basically just dive into them. And one of them was Vita Group, VTG. Back then when it was, I don't know, maybe 20 cents or something like that. Um, and I actually wrote a report, uh, probably like a 20, 30 page report. And I was reading Roger Montgomery's website um, at that point. It might've been 2011, 2012 by this point. Um, and I, I just sent him that report and I thought, I'll see what he, what he thinks. You know, I'm, I might sell the industry. I'll hopefully have some feedback. 
And I'm guessing Roger Goncombe back then was a pretty big, like pretty prominent figure as well. Was he in the sort of investing and media scene? Oh, he was. Yeah. No, he really sort of, yeah, hundred percent. He wrote a book, uh, had a really big following online. Like he really sort of carved out that niche of value investing in small caps back then. So I think it was, I think he was just a private investor. I don't think he had the larger fund he has now. So he's probably more, he's more in the small space than he would be now. So had a great following and I was a big fan of his work, to be honest. But I sent this long report thinking, you know, maybe in a week you'll read it and you'll give me some feedback and then I'll go away and fix it. And then the next morning it was on his blog. Oh, wow. Um, and I just thought, well, how cool is this? Yeah, I just thought, look, this is a guy who actually knows what he's doing, thinks my work is actually okay. You know, so it was kind of the first kick that I needed to be like, okay, I must have some sort of um, idea of what I'm doing here. So, and this works, writing a really, in, you know, sort of detailed report worked. Let's just keep doing it. Um, and I did. And, and eventually that report, uh, so it's a company called Pythons, now substantial in Vita Group back then. Um, it was one of their big winners over the years. And that report basically got me in touch with uh, Mike Taylor over there, who was the boss, and, and Mark Desich, who was the head of research. And, and Mark himself probably been the sort of, I guess, closest thing to a mentor for me. Um, but eventually, once I finished uni, you know, I ended up working for Python. So that's probably the, the point where it all sort of, fell into place, I guess, um, where I went from just a sort of young guy who's just trying really hard outside of the industry to actually starting to know people in the industry that can sort of push me in the right direction to where I want to go. I think that's really interesting and maybe a bit inspiring for people that are looking to get sort of work in the industry that even without an established network or professional experience, you're able to connect up and contact people and find employment within the space by the sound of it. Yeah, I think the lesson is that, you know, if you do really good work, people will notice it. Um, or even not if you just do really good work, but if you really put the effort in, that's probably a bigger thing. I'm sure if you went back and looked at some of my research there, it's probably pretty sort of um, rough around the edges, but you could tell that I was a young guy who was really trying hard um, and people notice that. And, you know, then they reach out to you and you build a bit of a network and then you learn off them and then you share ideas. And so it, as long as you're putting in the work and really trying, um, you'll sort of, I think you'll meet the right people that can sort of help you um, find out where you need to go. And I guess the other thing to that was, you know, obviously I had sort of the, the formal education in the accounting and finance, which does have some accounting certainly has applicability, but you've got to be able to just jump in the markets and learn the markets yourself. And you've got to learn, you've got to lose money and you've got to make all the mistakes. And if you can do that early when you're trading small amounts and make all those mistakes on tiny amounts that you can make back much quicker than when you have large sums, um, that's good too. And were there any sort of really memorable wins or losses in your small cap trading when you were starting out there and finding what worked for you? Yeah, I did. So obviously I did quite well. So the goal, once I sort of finished uni, so I was only a Bachelor of Commerce, it was a three-year degree. I sort of done okay to the point where it was a bit of a naive, you know, 21-year-old thing, but I saved up enough money um, where I thought I could just do it full-time, don't need a job, never did any interns. I was just loving what I was doing. I was going and meeting companies researching them, putting my own money in and they were doing well. And so I figured that I'd saved up enough of a nest egg there that I would just keep doing that full time. Um, that was sort of the, the vision back then. Um, it was only because of um, Pythons reaching out and they were sort of the one group that I really admired what the boss and what Mark had done there um, that I thought if they ever do reach out to me and say, you can have a job, I'll just go. They're in New Zealand, so it was a big move to go there, but I just knew I was going to say yes if, if they offered it. Um, but yeah, there was a number of stocks back then that, that did really well. I was quite impatient as an investor, so a lot of stocks I sold too early. You know, they would double 
and I would get out and I would go and find the next stock. Um, and I think it's probably lucky that I was in a time where there was a lot of cheap stocks. And so you could do that. You could sell your Vita groups and go into your MyNet phones and your Paragon Cares and they would, you know, they were all having really good runs. And if you got good at maneuvering around the market, you could, um, you could make pretty good money there. Whereas some of those stocks continued to run on for many years, much higher than where I sold them. And that's probably a lesson to, in hindsight that um, probably overworked a little bit there, but it was just an impatient thing. You know, you're young, you don't have any money, you want to get there sooner. Um, but yeah, there were definitely some stocks there that, that um, did very well for me, which was lucky. And what about ones that didn't do well? Do you have any that um, you sort of just went gung-ho in? And oh, was it total disaster or managed yeah. to avoid big blow-ups early on? To be honest, I probably managed to avoid any big blow-ups in the first, oh, maybe four or five years of doing that. Um, also because, you know, to be fair, not that I was great at avoiding them, but because I was managing smaller amounts, you know, if you took a 20, 30% loss, it wasn't a big deal because you could, you could maneuver and make that back again. And, and I had the market on my side, small caps were very cheap. Um, and you know, the trend was up. Um, so that was definitely, there was, there was luck there too. But, um, the flip side was that it wasn't anywhere like it is now. Like there was, there wasn't any, nobody wanted to own stocks. Um, you know, you could buy a whole lot of really good businesses for you know, low teen PEs when now they're on 30, 40 times. It was a really different environment. Um, so it, was, it sort of had pluses and negatives for that. Um, so I don't really remember any um, really sort of big losses that were blow-ups or anything. And I mean, I was careful with it. I, was, I wasn't just throwing all of my cash into the next idea and, and hoping it was going out. I was really putting the work in. I was I was concentrated, but I wasn't, you know, everything in one stock sort of thing because it was all my, my savings. So I had to be careful with it. You know, I had that, I had a little business on the side until I went to New Zealand to work for Pythons, but I had that business on the side sort of bringing in cash as well. So, you know, if there were some stocks here or there that weren't that good or they were just not moving and you have opportunity costs and you have to move on to the next idea, I, I was able to do that. Yeah, okay. And so, and after that, so you mentioned that you moved to, moved to New Zealand and took up that job with Pythons. Was that um? What was sort of the the major things that you realised quickly there that was so different when you're working in a sort of professional or managing other people's money environment versus just your own account? Yeah, well, those guys, I think those guys are really good. Um, you know, Mark Devich, I think he's one of the, the the best investors in in small caps. And I was coming from a very self-taught sort of area. You know, I'd just done everything the way that worked for me, whether that was the the right way. And so, what Python for me was was sort of my first exposure to how a fund manager actually operates and, and the ups and downs of it too. And you know, what advantages they have and then what disadvantages they have and then how you can sort of maybe as a private investor um, benefit from the disadvantages that a fund manager has. Sorry, Harley, do you want to just explain that to our listeners? What would be a key difference between a private investor and, and fund managers? Sure. I mean, look, the, the most obvious one is, um, it's probably time. Um, like a fund manager, you know, their time is really stretched and, and, and I'm doing that now. So, you know, I kind of have the, the balance of the two, but I've, I've structured my fund in a way that I can, it's really just an extension of what I was doing with my own personal investing for many years. So um, when you're a private investor, you know, if you find one or two really great ideas, you can spend weeks on that one idea to just really build a lot of conviction and make sure that you should be in that stock. And if you are, then you swing pretty hard at it. Um, you know, you can't do that as a fund manager. Obviously, there's no career risk when you're managing your own money. Um, that's a big thing. There's no sort of investors that are saying, asking questions. 
you know, why is your stock up or down or, you know, why, you know, questions about volatility. There's just, there's just none of that. Um, and all those things are real advantages um, that a private investor does, does have. I going to say that portfolio allocation is really interesting because we've spoken to a few guests that have really gone in highly concentrated in one or two stocks, if not one. Um, and for whatever reason, with a bit of luck and a lot of skill, um, they've done extremely well. So I, I guess I'd be interested in, in, in knowing how concentrated you went in a stock before you jumped over to the other side. Yeah, so in the very, very early days, I mean, I started doing the minimum trades that Comsec allowed. You know, I remember when they, I saw that $500 is the minimum and I thought, oh, geez, that's a, that's a bit of a stretch. So in the very early days, it was, it was sort of everything, your best idea, your 5K, your 10K in your best idea um, and hope it does well. And then over time, it sort of morphed into probably sort of maximum of a 30, 40% as an absolute maximum um, at cost. Um, but I would let them run as much as they deserved. You know, if a stock doubled or tripled and I still thought it was cheap, I would hold it. If it hit my sort of target of what I thought it was worth, in the early days, I was a little bit too keen to, to sell and find the next one, you know, just moving around and trying to, it's, it's just really just impatience, really. But um, it's also, you know, I guess as a, as a younger investor, you feel like the more work you do, the harder you go, the faster you'll get to your goal, which is not really how it works in investing. Um, you sort of just got to work smart, got to work hard as well, but you've just got to balance that. It's not always the, the more work you do, the more results you get or the faster results you get. I think it's interesting there because that's something I struggle with as well as, you know, once something reaches a valuation or a price you think is comfortable with, your inclination is to sell. But you meant, you alluded to there that you started to sort of hold on. Did you even as, as stocks continued maybe past what you think they were, the fair value was? Oh, it's probably a, it's a little bit like that. So in the earlier days, you know, I'd have these, Sort of valuation targets of what I thought it was worth, um, and if there were a, if it, if it got close to that target, and there was another stock out there that I thought was at a much bigger discount, then I would definitely sell at least some to start moving into a new idea. Um, you know, that's part of it. However, there were some stocks, and they're the ones you're trying to find where every results that come out or every year they actually get cheaper again because they upgrade or and when that happened when it was you know when you could actually see that your valuation lifting each time they put out more numbers then I was happy to hold it and what I meant by you know letting them run is that I didn't have any set weighting in the portfolio that I would say once it hits that I'm I need a trim or you know there, there, there were no rules around that if a stock justified being an, a very overweight position because it was just performing very well I was happy to let that happen um, and I think that's how you get you know, like you said that, you know, your guests previously and also with a lot of fund managers and you've actually went through all their track record. I'm, I'm sure a lot of their outperformance for the best performing funds over a 10 year period, a lot of their outperformance above the market would come from a handful of stocks. So when you're under a winner, I think you've got to try to really get the most out of that. Um, and that'll make up for you the ones you get wrong, which you, you, know, you definitely will get some wrong. So you just got to make sure you get as much as you can out of the ones that you get right. One thing we didn't cover off and just to go over briefly, I suppose, what you're doing now in that transition from, you came back from Pi Funds, did you, you came back from New Zealand and then just running your own money again? Was that the case there? Or when did you start up your um, current funds management operation? Um, basically what I did was I'd just been in small caps for 10 years. Um, up to Pi Funds, I had really good returns on PA, um, but nobody cares about PA. You know, even if it's a sizable PA for you, it's, it's not important. You need to have a sort of a defined track record um, if you want to eventually do a fund. Um, so the returns are really good and they would have been massive percentage numbers on a PA basis when I worked for Pi. When I came back, I sort of 
the goal was I'll set up sort of a, you know, a small but round number, just unit trust, and then that trust will be sort of audited over time as a way to eventually go to investors and say, here's a, here's a track record why you should back the new fund. Um, so that started in 2014. Um, and again, it was a really sort of just small, small money, but it was, a, it was a meaningful amount of my money at the time. Um, and one other family member. So my grandma put some money into, and it was only at that point, I think hundred K total. So 50 K each. So quite small. It was 2014. Um, and it was, you know, that number was chosen purely as a, as a round number. It'll start at that and let's see how we go. Um, and then that, I ran that until 2018, early 18. Um, and then I had to do the number. So the equivalent of when I did the IM, but the equivalent would have been 100K to sort of 800K um, after all fees. So it was a good run. My grandma was really happy with that. So she ended up, she actually <laughs> lost her pension because of that. She had a few sort of six-figure years where um, they called up and said, you don't get your pension anymore. So she was a bit stressed about that at first, but I think she's, she's come to terms with that. But um, so that was a- Good know, problem to have. <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then over time, again, I was just sort of writing reports, and over time, I'd get sort of sophisticated investors who, you know, fund managers or corporate advisors, whatever it may be, reach out and say, let's have coffee, and do you mind if I put a small amount of money in that private trust? And we're not talking big amounts, just sort of more as um, sort of their way to participate, and they respected the research, and let's see how you go. Um, and it was a pure trust thing, because this was just a unit trust run by me. There was no back office at that point, no custodian, no administrator, it was just a you know, a very bland unit trust. Um, but they rode some of that upside and I, I, these guys sort of knew all along um, that eventually the goal was to launch a proper small cap fund. Um, and so, yeah, that did well. Um, and then 2018, early 2018, I sort of made the decision and told the, the people in, in the private trust that I'd like to do a small cap fund. Um, and then, you know, some of the guys in there just sort of rolled out the carpet and did a whole lot of, you know, helped me a lot there to be able to set up the fund um, in terms of introductions to other investors and AFSL and back office. So we have all the proper infrastructure in place to actually run a proper wholesale small cap fund. Um, so that launched in, in June 2018. Oh, I was just going to ask, I think you were just going to cover off what the performance has been since you've started the fund in June 18. Yeah, the fund's been performing well. So we were plus 55% um, after fees. Uh, at the end of November, wow. um, which was which is pleasing because you know we probably averaged that whole period at you know thirty five forty percent cash. That's a little bit higher than where I normally have it. Thirty percent cash is normal for me, just in my process. But it's not like we've been fully invested and been taking massive risks, so we've been able to get reasonably good returns without while always having a big cash buffer there too. Um, but you know it, it, it's sort of the fund's only eleven million dollars a fund, so we're a small cap. We are a small fund. Uh, in the scheme of things, not the smallest, but we're one of the small ones. And when you're small, you've really got to, you sort of got to perform, you know. It is a lot easier to make 50% on 10 mil than it is on, you know, 200 mil. And that's intentional. I, I do want to keep it small for as long as possible. Um, the pure goal is just, I told investors on day one that I want to have the best track record in small caps over 10 years. Um, so hopefully in June 2028, I can, I can say that that was done. But that's sort of what I'm, working towards and if staying small for as long as possible helps that um, then I'm more than happy to to do that um, you know all my money's in the fund you know myself and my family are the, are the largest ones in the fund and I, I like that concept I think it you know if anybody ever questions incentives I think that's the biggest sort of the strongest answer you can get is that all your money and you are the largest investor in that fund I think that's the right way to do it yeah that's fantastic I think 
I liked, I really enjoyed that granny bit and, uh, you know, your, uh, your grand and, and having family and, and stuff there that absolutely would keep you incentivized and people can't ask questions when you're, everyone's involved like that. So no, that, that's, that's been a, a great part of it. Um, you know, I think that, that probably trained me early of what it feels like to manage other people's money. You know, it's, I'd much rather lose my own money than lose my grandma's money. So, you know, learning that many years ago is, was probably a good learning curve for what it's like managing sort of clients money now but yeah no she's she's done she's done okay out of it which is good yeah okay and maybe can we just go through I guess what your maybe definition of a small cap is and then also the types of companies and stocks you're you're looking for through the the end of the market that you look at and what yeah what you sort of focus on yeah so I mean I don't really have a set definition of of sort of smaller micro cap I mean most of the things that I would be buying now and probably have through the years would be sub say 250 300 mil market cap you know, that, that's generally a rough rule. Uh, I have bought bigger things. I don't have any, and there's nothing in the mandate of the fund that says I can't. I think that's how it should be. You know, opportunities come up everywhere. But generally, it's the smaller stuff. You know, if you, probably the weighted average market cap at the moment of the things I own would be 75, 80 mil market cap. So it's really the sub 100 mil market cap that I spend most of my time in. And I guess the case study of what I'm trying to find is I'm trying to find a business that nobody's looking at, completely under the radar, Often that means it's a liquid because you know there's no one else watching or wanting to buy stock. Um, you want to be able to understand the business. Um, you know you want all the usual stuff everybody else wants, which is management with the right incentives um, that you can trust them. It's growing. You want to be able to value it. So a lot of businesses you just if I can't actually sit there and be very confident that the stock is worth two x of what it's trading at, um, then I just won't bother. Um, I need to be able to reach out to management. Um, management's a massive part of it. I can't talk to management. I just won't be there. There's other stocks that I'd rather look at. Uh, and then I guess the case study is you want to find a stock that has sort of institutional grade qualities, um, but is yet to be reflected in the price. And what I mean really by that is just that it needs to be a stock that if everything goes right in a year or two, will the bigger fund managers start buying it? Will the analysts come out, um, you know, with coverage on it? Um, is there enough in the in the quality of the business or in the management team to get all of those um, factors you need for it to have a re-rate? Um, so that if you get that, if you get the business part right, so the stock's growing, earnings go up, and that's all right, you got that part correct, and then you get the stock part right as well, so you get the, the increase in the multiple, you get some multiple expansion because um, you know bigger funds start buying it, and because the big brokers come out with with coverage on it, and and all the rest. So that's really the case study of what I'm trying to find. And then there's obviously just the fact that, you know, you're in the market, you look at all opportunities and a bunch of things come up that don't fit that criteria. And I'll still pursue those if they look like the opportunities to make money without much risk. Um, but the case study is that, is that um, sort of micro cap re-rate into a larger sort of small cap, mid cap. Are you buying stuff that is ever a momentum or an opportunity trade or is it literally a, a buy and I can see this happening in a future re-rating if the business delivers X, Y, Z milestones? And when you've bought something, uh, because you mentioned that the stock was fundamentally undervalued and no one was looking at it and I'm assuming people were selling, has that stock then continued to, dra to drag lower and really test that, 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 that thesis of yours? Uh, yeah, so the first um, question, it's, it, I don't do any of the sort of momentum things. I feel comfortable, I feel uncomfortable buying things that is, is sort of well-owned um, for good or for bad. Sometimes that's bad because momentum is really working at the moment. 
Um, so it's not like it's a bad strategy. There's nothing against that. But I personally feel a little bit more uncomfortable buying things from the um, already owned by a bunch of other fund managers. So I'm trying to find things that are completely under the radar. And so by definition, they're liquid. Um, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's sort of what I'm after. And then, like you said, you're sort of um, doing your work to figure out that if X, Y, Z happens, then profits grow and then, then stock re-rates and everyone else gets interested and you get that, you get that sort of multi-faggers, what you're, you're going after. Um, generally, you know, once you get past, uh, I guess, a, a small sort of PA size portfolio, um, which is, you know, very small, um, you'll find you have to get a bit more creative in finding stock. Um, like if you're managing 100K or below, then you can probably just take positions on market pretty easily, get in, get in no problem and get out no problem as well. Um, a lot of the time, you know, now, then you have to sort of, you know, sort of find an off-market seller or you're buying for weeks or months or whatever it may be. Um, so to answer that second part of the question, you know, sometimes if a stock just keeps going against you and you've done your work, uh, it's actually just an opportunity to keep sort of um, building that position. It's a, it's a liquidity you need. Uh, I'd say probably more often I have an issue where you it's harder to build a position rather than the position going against you and you're still building it. But there's certainly there's certainly been times where a stock has either gone down or more often um, it just goes nowhere, uh, and and that's that's still real opportunity cost too, especially because we've been in a bull market for a while now. Could you shed a bit more light on that? Because I think that's really interesting. Because I think a lot of people listening to this will go, you know what? I like ABC. I've done all my homework, and often they will get stopped out or shaken out because you know you can't fight the market if the trend is against you, and you will have the view that you know what I have to protect some capital here and maybe look at this because I might be wrong now, but I can look at this again in six months. And certainly that's what some of our guests have said. So has there been anything in particular that's really tested that resolve of yours or that you can? Yeah, I can give you examples of the last sort of 18 months. Um, Cause it does, that does happen. So I, I guess the first thing you've got to make sure you're on top of is your position sizing. So if you've gone into a stock and, and you're watching it every single day and you're worried or, you know, why is it not re-rating and then you're getting on social media and, and you know, saying it's being manipulated or whatever it is, then you're probably overweight in the stock. You know, I think you need to be, um, you need to size it so that, like, never go so hard at a stock um, that you can't buy more on weakness um, if it if it's justified in doing so. If you're at the point where you're you're too full in that stock, um, then that's already a mistake, I would say, and that's going to affect how you consider all the other factors that happen when a stock starts going against you. You know, you need to be able to approach it from a real sort of clear mind. And that starts with having the right position size. And I do go quite concentrated in stocks. So I'm not saying take a 2% position. You have to go, if you find something you like, you've got to go hard. Um, but you just don't go overweight at the beginning. Um, and then the second part is you just really got to do your work. You've really got to know um, the business. You've really got to know what factors. Like for any investment, for any business, you can go away and do hours and hours of work on a business, talk to company multiple times. But for most of these stocks, there's a few metrics or a few things, and it's different for each business, but there's a few things that you need to figure out that actually drives the stock up or down, you know, whether it's going to re-rate or not. Um, and you just need to be across those things. And if you if you can't understand the business enough to know what those factors are, then you should be able to have a good handle of where the stock should be going. And so if you get a stock that's going against you and you think all those things are going the right way, well, that's an opportunity to buy. And then, you know, vice versa if um, stock's going against you and, and they're not going the right way, well, then you just got to be vigilant. Um, and then part of that, at least for my process, I know there's multiple ways to do it. For my process is 
when I get set into a stock and when I go and meet management, I'll sort of lay out a rough timeline of things that I expect to happen um, or how I expect it to play out. And some of that's, you know, what management will tell you, we'll do this and we'll do that and you can expect this and then do they actually deliver? And if they don't deliver or if things come out of left field that you didn't see coming, I'll just start selling. So I won't necessarily exit completely, but if the thesis isn't working out like I expect it to, I will just start selling. Um, there's a few other sort of cues that I'll use to just sell sort of indiscriminately. Um, but the reason for that is that, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be, you don't want to fight the market. Like you said, you know, the market can be wrong, but it's really sort of wrong for a long time. It's usually wrong for a short period. There's an opportunity, you go hard and then it re-rates. So if it's consistently going against you, you've probably got to keep doing more digging and finding out, you know, why. Um, and whenever I enter a stock, I guess the goal for me is to, is to understand why the person selling me that stock is selling so that I can sort of form a view on why they are wrong. And if I can't do that, then I won't be in the stock. And so you might get into a stock and say, yep, I know why this person is selling because they've taken a view on this and I have the opposite view, therefore that's why I'm buying. Six months on my path, stock's gone down and then you've lost that conviction. And so I'll be selling too. So really what it just comes down to is just really understand the business and, and continue to follow the business, understand what the actual drivers of that business are um, and you just have to have conviction. So, and then sometimes you will get them wrong. So, you know, you need to, you need to cut your losses early if you, if you think the thesis is doing something different to what you expected or, and that just comes down to really minor things. You know, if you see one little thing that didn't fit what you thought was going to happen, then I think you've got to start selling because you've got to acknowledge you've got some part of that thesis wrong. Um, you, you want to be selling while the thesis is breaking, not when it's broken, because when it's broken is when they put a downgrade out and you're going to be down 50% in a day because everyone's going to get out at the same time. Um, and when that happens, you, if you've done your job right, you'll never avoid them completely, but you've done, if you've done your job right, by the time that happens, it's a much smaller position for you because you've been watching over time that a few things have led to that. They rarely, they do happen and I've had them before, but those downgrades and those shock announcements really come out of complete nowhere. Normally there's indications of something along the way. So if you know the business well and you can track it as, as deeply as you can, then hopefully you'll be able to find those sort of signs that something's not right with the thesis. That's terrific, Harley. I think one of the points that really screams out to me is that point where you said, if you can't find out the reason why they're selling, um, you know, and that's akin to going on and, and seeing someone talk something negative, whether that be Twitter, Hot Cop or whatever, and if you can't come up with your own counter to that, instead of getting emotional, as we see people do, I think that's a very good early telltale style sign for investors. Yep, I agree. And that also sort of ties into why I don't like owning stocks that are, that are well-owned. It's a lot easier to sort of um, become confident on why someone's selling you a stock when there's hardly any selling in the stock. Um, you know, when you're the only one looking at it, and you know who that seller is. Sometimes you talk to manager and you say, is there any selling? And they'll say, oh, there's a shareholder who's been in there for 10 years and he's just selling it on market. And you go, okay, so maybe you know, I might have an informational advantage over that guy because I've done a bit more work and he just wants out. He wants some Christmas present money or whatever it is. And then, and, and then you know with conviction you know, who you're buying from. And that doesn't happen in the mid caps and large caps and it often doesn't happen in market caps. But when it does, that's an opportunity. But yeah, like you said, if, you, if you're in a stock and there's just consistent selling, or you see a fund manager, you know, changing substantial and they're reducing. You've, you've just, they're not always, you know, fund managers do get it wrong, but it's definitely a cue for you to go away and reassess your thesis. That's some really good pointers. And I guess just to think about the, 
you mentioned that you're following along the story and you've got your own timeline to marry up against the company's execution of against that timeline. Do you follow along stocks as well that you don't hold positions in sort of and meet management and understand what's going on and just sort of follow for the journey before you take a position as well? Absolutely. Yep. All the time. That's probably, you know, just as much of my time spent on that than there is um, with the companies that I already own. Um, the thing, I think in micro caps and small caps, you know, a lot of these stocks have been listed for many years um, and then they sort of, they'll tend to have their time, you know, um, where they go through those periods of re-rates. Um, and so, it, and you have to move quick as well. So you, you can't, if a company that's been listed for five years puts out an announcement and it's a catalyst, profit upgrade, acquisition, some sort of step change in the business, if you're then only just reaching out to management and starting to do your work, um, then you're behind. You know, there's somebody out there who did their work the whole way through and met with management a year ago and, and figured out that, you know, if X, Y, Z happened, then it would be a buy and they're buying on the announcement uh, or they're buying shortly after. Um, and, you know, that, that sort of ties back into an advantage, I guess, that private investors have over fund managers is that, you know, especially the larger, not the boutique fund managers, but the larger fund managers, um, you know, they find an idea and they'll have to sort of discuss it with the investment committee and go through a whole process, um, which is the right thing to do because they're managing other people's money and you have to do all those. You have to tick all those boxes. It is 100% the right thing to do. But as a private investor, if you've done your work beforehand and this stock is, is a buy based on your work and your high conviction, then you can start moving now. Um, and the way microcaps in particular move is that they might go nowhere for 12 months and then they, you know, double or triple in, in two, three, four months. You know, it all happens in short periods. So you've got to be um, sort of willing to move quickly. So, and the only way that you can do that is that you do your work beforehand. So I'll just go out. I mean, I see my job for the last 10 years is just to be across the whole small cap market. You know, there's not that many stocks. If you're doing this 24-7, and this is all I've been doing for 10 years um, in one capacity or another, if you're doing this 24-7, there's not that many stocks out there. You just sort of pull out the, the no revenue biotechs and the you know, sort of mining exploration companies. Um, and there's not that many and you just eventually work your way through. You go and meet companies that look interesting before they become strong buyers. Um, and then you'll be surprised how often one day they come out with an upgrade or an acquisition or some sort of catalyst. Um, and then you can just do your catch up call with the management or you can just go through your notes. Um, you just sort of, you're one step ahead of the crowd and you can move a little bit quicker. Yeah. I just want to dig into that a little bit in terms of the you know, contacting and um, communicating with management. Have, have you found that's changed since you were just a private investor to being, you know, having a, a fun name behind you? Uh, no, personally. I so said this, this is probably one where I was a little bit different because I hear a lot of people, you know, that are private investors might find it tougher. I just did the, to be honest, enough, I did the fake it till you make it thing. Like I was 18, I had a domain name and I said I was a private investor. So they didn't know whether I was managing 10,000 or 10 million. And I would just reach out to a CEO and I'd say you know, a really sort of professional email. Um, I'd love to meet you and discuss your, your business. And I might, you know, sort of put something in the email that, that suggested that I had done the work so they're not wasting their time. So if you go in um, and you've done your work and you ask really good questions, I think they'll respect that. Um, and they'll give you really good answers. So, you know, obviously the quality of the answers you get is based on you know, the quality of your questions. And you can only do that um, by doing really good work beforehand. Reflecting back, do you sort of um, notice things now in general that, I guess if you sort of aggregate all the conversations you have with management teams, where you notice similarities of companies that have done well versus haven't done well over time, or any sort of key themes, I guess, that you look out for now? Yeah, like I said, I mean, management is is a massive part of sort of my own 
process. I think assessing management is probably the, I wouldn't say the hardest part, but it is one of the harder parts of investing um, because it's a real sort of um, personal thing, you know, and you tend, people tend to like people to like them and that's not sort of how you, you should invest. You've got to pick the, pick the winners. So I think if there were some characteristics you need to look for, the obvious ones is you just need to have aligned incentives. You know, if the, if the CEO doesn't have a bunch of shares or isn't buying actively on market, then you really have to question why you'd put your own money there. And that's all really basic stuff that everyone talks about, but it's, it's important. You know, I, I like the founder-led businesses or at least the business where the CEO comes in and is buying shares at the same price that you're able to buy because I just want to know that the person running it um, has the same incentives I do. Uh, and then the rest is really, I guess, basic things. You know, do you, do you trust the person? Are they energetic? Um, do you feel like they would sort of, um, you know, lead a team well? Would you want to work for them? Uh, and then a really big one when you're doing sort of the case study of what I'm after where you find a market cap that can re-rate to a small or mid cap, you, you need to find management that will impress the larger fund managers. Um, so if you're a private investor or just a smaller fund that's meeting management early before they're sort of flooded by institutional interests so no brokers, no fundies, you almost have to sit there and, and interview them or talk to them and, and consider how they would present to a larger fund manager next year. Because they're the ones you need to be buying the stock so that you get that re-rate and the liquidity that comes in and so on. So if you're sitting there and, and you like the business and everything else ticks the boxes, but there's something that would prevent a fund manager eventually wanting to be a part of that company, then it's probably not going to be a great investment or it's always going to be sort of a micro cap. It's never going to make the step to being a, a small or mid cap which is fine. You can still actually make good money in those ones that are just trades, but to really get that proper re-rate, um, you have to assess management from the perspective of how would a, a larger fund manager and the brokers, and would, would they engage well with the capital market, I guess, and would they tell their story well? Because you know, there, there's two sides. You need, to, you, need to, you need to find a good operator, and then you need to find somebody who can tell that story well um, so that it's reflected in the share price. And then the really good ones are when you can find the individuals that have both of those qualities, but that is rare. And or I guess to come onto that, do you have any sort of um, successful 10 baggers or absolute success stories where you sort of remember meeting management team and thinking, wow, that's and coming away thinking this is something and it, it's delivering? Yeah, I do. I mean, a recent one that the fund did quite well out of um, in FY19 was, was wiser. So I guess I, you know, I sort of, I had a view that fintechs were going to come in to sort of a hot phase, there's a bunch of regulations and it was kind of obvious that um, you know, the market was going to, to look at them. And I went and met um, the wiser manager team, so Anthony Nettis, um, who was previously at Prosper. Um, and I remember just sort of meeting him and just thinking, as soon as this guy gets in front of the larger fund managers, they're just gonna throw money at him because he's a really good operator. He's in a space that's growing rapidly um, he's going to be able to raise as much money as he needs. He seems like a good guy as well. Um, and, and that, that investment was really sort of, you know, I had to do all my fundamental work as well, but you know, that was just a, a case where it's like, you just have to back this guy. You know, you, you, it was more about, you know, how much weighting should I give the stock? Because I'd already decided that this was a manager that you want to back. Um, and at the time there was zero liquidity. We bought our shares off. Um, one of the advisors to the IPO, and they had a long history of, um, as a different under a different name, direct money. They had a long sort of tainted history. And Anthony came in, turned it around, and he was just starting to get out and tell the new story. And I just knew that 
as soon as he did, you know, you would get the larger funds coming in. Um, and that, that did work really well. So that's probably an example of where it worked well. I'm sure there's other ones where I didn't get it so right, but I think we bought most of our stock at um, probably 2.7. I think it got to 21 within a year. Um, so not quite a 10 bagger, but I was, you know, it was okay. Um, Close enough so to be noteworthy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and to be honest, you know, the hard part about the 10 baggers is probably holding them. You know, there's, there's, there's quite a few out there, but in the early days, I sort of mentioned earlier, but when I had smaller amounts to manage, I was a bit more impatient. And so if you got a two bagger or a three bagger, you'd just sort of be stoked and you'd, you'd take the money out and, and try to find the next two or three bagger. Um, you know, the harder part with 10 baggers is you've just got to, you just got to hold them and that can be really, really hard. So yeah, occasionally you find those, but I'm sort of, I'm happy to find the two, three, four, five baggers. Um, and then sort of recycle the capital again into the next idea. That's just sort of how my process developed over the years. So Harley, just on the wiser story, because I've been following the story fairly uh, loosely, um, I'm assuming you what you exited around that spike in May and, and what sort of... Ch- oh, I'm still in the stock. Oh, you're still in the stock. Okay. Sorry, I thought you said... Yep, you're, you're... But it's a much smaller position. So... Okay. So you took some off the table in that spike um because of it obviously had run very hard between that january to, to, to may june period yeah i sold just sort of all the way up really um i felt it was worth sort of 10 cents once it got there i started selling a bit more aggressively in hindsight that's a mistake I should just let it run um but wiser was sort of one of the early winners for the fund and then part of that is you know spent 10 years to get to the point where you can launch a small cap fund um you sort of want to make sure you can get off to a good start and so in hindsight, I probably sold some of our winners a bit too early, just trying to lock in some good return. Um, but but why is it still in the fund? It's, it's only a, a small position now. It's, it's you know, far more than free carried. Um, but I think, you know, I, I'm backing the team. So I think Anthony and, t- and his team could build something um, really big. I think the other thing is that it is, at the end of the day, uh, a consumer lender. And so all of those fintech stocks haven't been tested by a change in the cycle. And that's another factor of why I sort of sold um, aggressively on the way up rather than just letting everything ride, even though it did get larger funds coming in and now it's got plenty of broker coverage and, and all the rest. So it is playing out how you would hope it would. Um, but at the end of the day, it is a consumer lender. So um, there are those risks uh, entailed. So it would, never be a, it would never be the kind of business that I would make a very, very large position. You've mentioned a bit about identifying 10 baggers. That's what we're trying to do and help. Uh, speculators or investors to find those do you have any other tips for retail things that they can look out for or what sort of criteria i guess uh sure i mean the first one that comes to mind is sort of what i mentioned before and it needs to be institutional grade um because those are the buyers they're the marginal buyers that are really going to push it up um over time you know it, it can't really be limited to just retail money generally speaking um so you want to find a story early um, and you want it to have all the qualities that eventually some larger fund managers will be happy to to, to buy into. Um, and those qualities really are, you know, they have to be able to back management. They have to like management, they have to have incentives aligned. They have to be in a market that's that's growing, so you want tailwinds, so you want some excitement behind there, so that they can, you know, I mean, cash is king and everything comes down to the numbers and valuation, but narrative is really important too, especially when you're looking for 10 baggers. Um, so you want to sort of buy these things when there's just no blue sky priced in at all, but you want the business to, and the market they're in to have qualities that there could eventually be excitement in so that the market can eventually start pricing some of that blue sky in. And that's sort of how you get your real um, sort of larger multi-baggers. 
Um, and then the business has to be has to be scalable. You know, if you're in a business that just doesn't scale, um, you know, you're going to find it hard for the stock to be a ten bagger. Um, so that just comes down to sort of the the quality of the business and you know when you time your entry and and all the rest. But uh, that that's sort of the the sort of blueprint I guess you're looking for. But then you sort of have to recognise that each opportunity does look quite different. And you've got to go in and do your work and assess it on its own merits. And you sort of got to, I guess there's a point in, in sort of looking for 10 baggers where you have to be a little bit uh, creative and sort of picture what things could look like you know, one or two years um, ahead. And that's completely separate from the price because I think often, you know, you'll look at a stock and if the stock is really low and it's getting sold off, then it can't, you kind of look at it and you think it's a bad business or it's not going anywhere. There's no liquidity, you know, it'll never be a 10-bagger. You've kind of got to completely separate that and think about the qualities of the business on their own. If they do a few things, what could it look like? And then what could the market sort of um, price reflect as such, if that makes sense? That's sometimes hard to do. You've got to be able to, I guess, maybe creative is not the right word, but you've got to be able to look forward and see how the market might assess things um, on a clean slate. Brilliant. Um my favourite part, obviously, is putting uh, our guests under the gun to identify their 10-bagger. Now, obviously, the caveat is you probably talk your book, so whatever you're going to throw at us, and you can throw a couple, um, is obviously at uh, today's closing prices. So, um, yeah, what do, you, what do you like for in the, uh, for punters or investors to, to have a 10-bagger? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I own the fund owns 12% of this, so, you know, that's that clear. I am sort of um, bias, but I think Scroll Group is a real potential 10-bagger. Um, so Scroll Group, SCLs, the code, they provide an online platform for the hiring of uh, international school teachers. So it's international schools on one side that pay a platform fee and then candidates, which are, which are teachers on the other side. Um, and they're basically just disrupting the traditional placement market. So previously, you know, a, um, a school would pay, say, $3,000 for a placement of a teacher to go work at, you know, a school in Beijing or in Dubai or wherever it may be. Um, and now you just sort of pay a flat fee, you sit on the platform and you sort of search through the candidates based on their profile. Um, so this, this company, um, we got involved a little while ago, it's done okay, but it's had a good sort of retrace now, which I think is quite, um, quite healthy. Um, and we've just sort of been topping up, but um, it's recurring revenue, you know, it's high margin sort of software revenue, um, it's a platform business. So, you know, in platforms, it's probably an overused term, but you have that network effect. Um, so, you know, if you're a teacher or if you're a school, um, you've got to go on the platform with the most schools and the most teachers. And so that creates a sort of winner take all dynamic. You can't go to the, the platform with the second most. You need to go where um, you have the best option to get the best job or the best option to hire the best candidate. Um, and Scroll are one of two big players in that market um, that are actually disrupting the much larger placement market. Um, and in those, well, amongst those two players, there's Scroll and another player called TES. Um, they're sort of split by curriculum, um, British and American. So I think there's a natural runway of growth there that Scroll can keep growing into. Um, they're growing probably 30% per annum, I think, in the last update. Um, they should be close to sort of 400 schools by you know, end of December or around that number. Um, and then candidate numbers are growing at sort of record rates. I don't think it's ever grown faster. And and candidate numbers are important because the more candidates and the more engaged candidates you have on the platform, the more attractive it is for a school looking to hire teachers. You know, they want, they want to see more people on the platform filling out profiles and providing more information. Um, and the market cap something like 18 or 19 mil 
we got two and a half mil cash. It should be cash flow positive this quarter. Um, I just think it looks too cheap for what they've achieved. Uh, and I think as a good business, it could be it could be a really good business. And how long have you followed that one for, Harley? Has that been something that's been in the fund for a long time? Yeah, probably twelve months. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We so the background to it was I was just sort of slowly buying some, um, probably from I think May, um, and then we participated. We led a placement in the company. Um, it was only small, day eight hundred grand, um, but just to sort of give them enough cash to make sure they had enough to get to that cash flow break even point. Um, which I think a sustainable cash flow. But so there are some um, some cycles in the cash flow. So last quarter was very strong um, positive cash flow. This quarter should be strong as well. And then the following quarter will be weaker just based on when they receive their cash from the schools. Um, but in terms of hitting that sustainable cash flow break even, um, it should be in the next 12 months. And I think when that happens, it won't stay at 18, 19 mil market cap. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I know there's a lot of sort of other bigger fund managers watching it and sort of waiting for it to hit that tipping point or reach that scale. Um, and that could just be through gradual growth or it could be through acquisition. So uh, I think there's a number of sort of acquisitions they could make to just bump up their school numbers, give them some scale. Um, it should be pretty accretive. And then there's, you know, it, it's a good quality business. If they can actually become uh, or maintain their leadership position in this platform space, um, they should have a long one runway for growth. And those platform businesses, when you get that um, momentum, they're, they're quite valuable. I just don't think that's yet reflected in the stock. So I think they can go from sort of 380 schools now to, you know, in a couple of years, a thousand schools. Um, and at that point, I think it would justify being, um, if not a 10 bagger, then, then close to it. Well, it's a great summary. Thank you. And gives a good overview for people to go and have a look at to do some more research of their own. That's about the end of the time we've got available for now, so we'll probably have to give it a wrap. But if people want to get in touch or find more about your fund, um, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I'd probably just go to the website, so just capitalhmanagement.com.au. Um, and, you know, also happy for anybody to email me. It's just harley at capitalhmanagement.com.au. Um, I am on Twitter as well. I don't sort of actively engage, but you can follow me on there. Occasionally I'll get a, something up there once every month or so, so don't expect anything too exciting. Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot for your time and sharing your experience and insights, Harley. There was um, a lot of great points there and ideas you covered off, and I'm sure folk will get plenty from it. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much, Harley. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And just a short postscript following the show. We realised after the recording that the comments Harley made about his position sizing might be a bit confusing. Just a point of clarification where Harley talks about his maximum position size relative to his portfolio. This comment was in relation to his historic personal trading account and not necessarily reflective of the way he runs his fund now. Thanks again for joining us and especially for listening this far again. If you like our content, the best way you can show your appreciation is by sharing the show with someone else who might enjoy it. That or leaving us a rating and review on iTunes, it really helps. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.